Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. I try to tell people, I said, listen, no doubt in my mind, many people behave narcissistically because they had terrible backstories. They might even have difficult present stories. And I get that and I feel for them and I have empathy for that. And their behavior is still not okay. Yes. Those two things can be true at the same yes. time. And people struggle with that. They're like, but no, no, no. But how could the, how could I say their behavior is not okay if they had a bad backstory? Because I said their behavior is not okay. Yeah. Yelling at someone's not okay. Manipulating someone's not okay. Oh, but that's what they learned from their parents. Okay. But they're getting up. They're going to a job. They're living a life. Sometimes they're really successful. So they can do all that. They can figure this out. And that's the problem is we let them get away with it. And a lot of us who've been through these relationships, we've had tough backstories too. Hi, I'm Rachel. And in this show, we talk about everything. Life and work, health and healing, relationships with others and with ourselves. These are stories for the seekers. These are conversations for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here because I have heard forever that if you want to have a conversation about this topic, you are the foremost authority to sit with. That's very kind. <laughs> If the audience isn't already familiar with your work, yeah. can we just establish who you are and yeah. how you found yourself as the mm. expert on narcissism? Well, my name is Dr. Romani Dravasla. Most people know me as Dr. Romani. I've worn a lot of hats professionally. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. And I've been in private practice. I, uh, I've been a professor, now retired, but professor of psychology for over 20 years. I have written four books, three on this topic. And most newest one come just about come out or coming out. Yeah. So I bring that interest. I train therapists on how to work pe- with people who uh, have these who are going through narcissistic relationships or healing from narcissistic abuse. I've survived it myself. And it, ironically, that's not what got me into it. People are like, is that how you got into it? I said, actually, it wasn't well down the track. And so I understand 
why we're defended against this. You know, we're so programmed to blame ourselves. So yes. I've gone through it in family relationships, intimate relationships, workplace relationships, friendships, and in very significant ways. And I'd say it's altered the course of my life and certainly how I view myself. So I get that. Yeah. And, you know, my practice is focused on working with folks going through this. So I know also what's possible in terms of healing. I see it through the work I do with them. And I have a big YouTube channel that takes on sort of all elements of narcissism every day, something else, some new musing. And we even have a healing program for survivors of narcissistic abuse who want to do a much deeper dive and really go listen to workshops and Q&As. And we have a community platform. So do it in a lot of different ways. And how I got into it, I just say, you know, I got into it originally as a researcher. I got really interested in how some people can be so difficult, awful, mean, entitled, demanding. And I originally got interested in it from the perspective of the havoc these people were, people, these personalities were creating in healthcare systems. These were the patients that were being demanding towards nurses, frontline healthcare practitioners, physicians, and they were leaving everyone so frazzled. I'm like, maybe we're all going to get worse healthcare as a result. So that's the research question that originally got me into it. And then in my practice, I kept seeing people talking about the same themes in their relationships. And I thought, why isn't anyone educating them about narcissism yeah. because if they could understand the dynamics of these relationships we could lift that self-blame so they didn't keep going through this cycle over and over again and i'm not saying it gets easy at that point but at least shedding a light on it was taking them out of this sort of eternal loop and that's sort of and then that kind of got me into it had my own revelation that this was happening to me <laughs> and then you know and then sort of thought how do i bring this to the public mm -hmm. because it's one thing to just sort of talk about it even write about it but how do we bring it in a much more live way to the world and that's how i find myself here so cool Thank i have you. about 50 follow-up questions great to that. Awesome. i'm so excited my first follow-up to this because my brain went in a thousand directions is you said that in your practice you were seeing couples come in and it was the same you were seeing the same story over and mm -hmm. over what were those things that you were seeing that we now have a better understanding mm -hmm. this is a sign of a narcissistic person at the most basic level is that they were chronically being manipulated devalued and questioned gaslighted over and over again. So examples would be a person who the first time she would say something different than what worked for the narcissistic partner, the rage would be astronomical, be like a dam breaking. And she got scared of the rage and he knew the rage was scary for her because she grew up with a rageful father and he'd keep doing it. And when she'd bring it up to him, he tell her she's being too sensitive. Now multiply that story by 100. And yeah. that's the sort of stuff I was running into. Any what people consistently finding was that when they like it's the, the best example I could be is like you see imagine you go to someone's house for dinner and you're like it's like I I love how they do their kitchen and they're they've made this dishes and like I'm going to go home and try this. And you go home and it's like a colossal fail because you don't have the right equipment, you don't have the right kitchen, you don't have the right setup. It's very similar in the sense that they see people having, okay, I went to dinner with someone there. They told their spouse how they felt. Their spouse got up and helped them. So they thought, maybe I'll ask for that thing. And so they'll do a normal thing and all hell will break loose. Mm. And so then they'll very quickly blame themselves and say, I must have asked it the wrong way. I must, I should have asked it differently. And the challenge was, is that 
every one of these clients, there was a consistency, right? The entitlement, the arrogance, the grandiosity, the variable empathy, the self-centeredness, the need for admiration and validation. That was consistent in everyone, right? But it showed up a little differently too. There's different kinds of narcissism and all of that. But at the end of the day, these clients said, for the longest time, I was trying to be in this like it was a normal relationship. But over time, the narcissistic person was, it almost felt like they were being indoctrinated into, you don't make your needs known. If you do, I'm going to tell you you're a bad person. That was really the formula. And so because they wanted the relationship to last, they kept silencing their own needs. Mm -hmm. And they woke up one day, 5, 10, 15, 40 years later, and recognized that they were a shell of themselves and that they were like living in this kind of subjugated state to this narcissistic person. But to the outside looking in, it Perfect. honestly just looked like the relationship was fine. Absolutely. And, and there were no black eyes. There was no upturned furniture. It looked normal. And so people then kept telling themselves, oh, relationships are tough. And, you know, my mother really loves me. And my dad had a rough backstory. I, but when you keep hearing things so, so often, I do remember there's a point in time, you sit down to do my clinical notes. And I think I had three set clients in rapid succession. So I had to quickly do their notes, but all at once. And I'm writing the note and I'm writing another note. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I must be writing the same note twice. I wasn't writing the same note twice. The themes were so similar. Yes. It felt like I was writing the same note twice. And it was those were the penny drop moments that made me think like, we really need to be writing about this and talking about this more because most people are not going to end up in my therapy office. Yeah. Well, you said something too. The, you were like, you know, having a rageful father, which reminded me in reading about this, that I have heard or read that there's a this is a terrible term, but there's almost like a mark for someone who is a good partner for a narcissist. There are things about them that make them, like I had read that you're the kind of person who's introspective. So you tend to, like if someone says something to you that you'll go, you'll internalize and be like, oh my gosh, did I, mm -hmm. did I say mm -hmm. that wrong? Mm -hmm. Did I? So are there things that make you more attractive to a narcissist because you'll play the yeah. game? So let's break that down in two ways because there's sort of multiple things going on here. It's what makes you attractive to the narcissist. Let's start there first. What makes you attractive to the narcissist are things that are going to get them supply. So it might be that you're physically attractive, that you are younger than them, that you have so, some form of social status. You have a fancy college degree or you have a fancy job. You have money or other resource that would also add to that sense of status. You praise them a lot. You swoon over them. Whatever it is, the narcissistic person is attracted to people bring them supply. And you're thinking, well, if a person is attractive, how does that bring supply? Because now they're with a hot person. Yep. Like that brings you supply because people are looking at you like, woo, you're with a hot person. Yeah. So all of that brings them supply. That's what attracts them. We're attracted to the narcissist because they're often charming, charismatic, confident, Sometimes they 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 can play at being very vulnerable initially. So we think, ooh, this is intimacy. Um, they often can be have their own status and credentials and good job. And narcissistic people tend to be more successful than average people. So you throw all that in the blender too, right? But then the big split comes in terms of, yeah, they're attracted to you. You're attracted to them. The things they're attracted to you and you are attractive things. Frankly, you're you're a good source of supply because you're successful or you're smart or you're funny or what are all the things that make anyone attractive. Where it starts to go wonky is when 
it we talk about the conversation about who gets stuck. Because the people who get stuck, there's where your so-called mark comes in. Mm -hmm. Because the people who get stuck are people who are very empathic, who are tend to be rescuers, who want to be fixers, who might have grown up like this. And so this is the template that they've got. They're used to giving up on their own needs. They're used to giving in like, oh, this is love because yep. this is how what I was raised with. Or it becomes so reflexive. You're not even, it's not like you're, no one's signing up to say, great love, I get to give up my needs. No one's doing that. <laughs> it happens very gradually, right? And so, but it it happens in this very almost automatic way. There's a certain psychological muscle memory that kind of kicks in, right? So in that way, people, I mean, even people who are very optimistic are get stuck because they're saying, it's going to change. Everyone can change. Maybe I need to love them more. Mm -hmm. You get that kind of thing. And then there's other sorts of interesting vulnerabilities at the time you meet them. And these could be things like if you're going through a transition. So for example, let's say, you just broke up with someone. You moved far away. You're in a new city. You're in a new job. Um, those th those might be vulnerable. Another vulnerable moment could be if you're in a rush. So you're at an age where you're, all your friends are getting married or mm. all your friends are having kids or you feel sort of left out because everyone's doing their thing. People might feel like, okay, this is the devil I know, but they're here and I do not have another two years to get something going. Then there's also this contrast effect thing, which is, let's say a person, two, a couple of things this can go. Let's say a person came out of a, a relationship with someone absolutely awful. Like there's no red flags. It's just one big red banner. It's, like, <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's, it might be physically abusive or just awful. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows it. it's not subtle. The way narcissistic relationships can be very subtle. So when someone comes around who doesn't abuse the hell out of you, that can seem attractive, right? That's why it's always important to take long breaks after relationships are unhealthy because you almost need to sort of clean the system out in a way. And I would add in that that can be the transition from childhood to adulthood. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. yeah, because coming out of an environment, if you had a parent who was a narcissist and then you immediately go into your first relationship, there's no frame of reference. There's no frame like, of reference. Like you just think no. this is what normal looks like. And there's also no individuation. So, you know, the big part of what being a human being is, and really the adolescence and emerging adulthood are meant to serve is we individuate into our own person, separate from our parents. If you have very healthy parents, they let you do that process. They support you through that process. They don't say, you owe me, or you need to be this, you need to do this, or why aren't you thanking me enough? Or they're, they're not they're not feeling as though their child is arrogant for individuating. It's a normal part of the human sort of developmental cycle, if you will. And that really happens emerging adulthood, let's call it 18 to 25, 20 to 25, right? And so when people do get into committed relationships, especially if they're coming out of a toxic narcissistic family system, they've already been very stunted in their capacity to become their individuated self. And if no one's talking to them about doing it, it's going to already be that much harder anyhow. But if you roll right into a relationship, which is why a lot of people have harmful, toxic relationships in college, because for some people, that's their first stint away from home. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very vulnerable group because there's a, I mean, the adolescent brain is still developing until 25. So there's still some of that impulsivity and just sort of, we don't know fully who we are. We're not sort of the the cake is still sort of wobbly in the pan kind of thing mm -hmm. until we're about 25. So I think that it's more valid to say it's important to understand what makes us attractive 
is if for any given narcissistic person, we're a good source of supply. And you what, keep saying supply, like it's giving them what they need. Well, it's giving them what they need. And that can be praise, admiration, compliments, presence, just simply you're present there with them, status. And where does that need come from? In so but narcissistic people, they are, for them, it's the only way I can, without getting into some sort of fancy psychodynamic theory is that they're they're empty. There's a real emptiness inside of them, right? And they need to fill it. Otherwise, they feel a sense of panic. They're very, they very much refer to what's outside of them. So they'll often set their goals on the basis of what they think other people would want them to do. What's the coolest place to work? What's a cool job? What's a cool place to be? It's always about sort of hip credential or status. Like they set their goals on the basis of what's cool and what's current versus they're, if you think the rest of us aren't individuated, they have no sense of self. It's very much on what's going to get me likes, you know, praise. I'm substantiated by how other people see me kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. how a narcissistic person views it. So th that emptiness in them means that if you're in a relationship with them, we make the mistake of thinking we're responsible for the other person's emptiness. If they're in a relationship with me and they feel empty, that's got to be my fault. I'm not filling them up. No, 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 no. We're all responsible for our own buckets. Yeah. So I don't think that a relationship should ever be doing the filling. The relationship is meant to be a complement, an enhancement. But looking to another person to fill that void is a huge mistake. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash hosting. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. 
national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. What does it look like if, because I'm trying to think from the perspective of listeners right now who perhaps they could be in a relationship or recognize a past relationship that they had with a narcissist. Mm -hmm. What does it look like if you're an adult and you're thinking of mom and daddy, or you're thinking mm -hmm. of the people who raised you, mm -hmm. how does that sort of emptiness or this um, desire to sort of get filled up, mm -hmm. how does that translate between parents who are narcissists and their children? So when a person has a narcissistic parent, odds on favorite that, it, that those narcissistic parent or parents created a child who is not sure of who they are unless they're sort of in service to someone else, right? Because they were really told that love is you meet someone else's needs and you silence your own. So that's, and what that does is it creates a real anxiety, a social anxiety. And am I disappointing someone anxiety? What if I'm saying it wrong anxiety? <laughs> I'm like, not I enough. I do this episode because I feel like we're having a therapy session. I'm like, holy shit, I have that yeah. big time. Mm -hmm. I have that so, I am 41 and I still, mm -hmm am petrified of disappointing someone, doing something wrong, of getting it like, and I've never equated it to that. Yeah. And God, are you, you're so right. Cause like in my family growing up, it was, I was the peacekeeper. I was the youngest of four and I was the peacekeeper and like make sure everyone's okay, make sure mama's happy and daddy's not screaming and like just do all these things. And I still, there's no family to keep, I mean, I have children obviously, but I feel like the world is, I, is everything okay. I've never associated it with that yeah, absolutely before. Absolutely, is it's almost a, it's like a trauma response. Yes, right. If everything's okay, then I'm safe. Yes, we're always driven towards safety, and so that is everything okay? Am I okay? Is it, we say sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Should I say that? I'm sorry. Can I get you anything? I'm so sorry. It's it's it becomes like this running tape for us, which is why people have been through this these kinds of childhood environments and even into adulthood really crave time alone because it's the only time somebody doesn't want something for you. It's the only way. <laughs> your nervous system can get a break oh my god we're doing a mirror podcast you're just like holding a mirror up you're so right mm -hmm. that is like i just i have four kids a lot of kids <laughs> and it is like that it i mean i'm just like i just want five minutes where nobody needs me for anything it's a need and you'll probably feel compelled to excessively caregive them yes because that's a throwback because that's how you got safe we really have to bring this back to safety it's not even to get one would say oh you do that so you could feel good about yourself or you do that to get praised no 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 right you're doing that to stay alive right yes i i really oh man i get that okay so maybe other people are having these light bulb moments like i am right now associating that with a parent I, I want to go back to this idea, though, just because it's also helpful for me to understand what is it that a parent, like a, an adult person who is a narcissist who has children, mm -hmm. how do they see those kids as sort of like giving them what they, is it the same kind of like the status thing? You got A's mm -hmm. and now daddy's proud of you or yeah. So the narcissistic parent, again, it's they, they need supply too. And the supply is going to be different. It, sometimes the supply is compliance. Like everything's in order and everyone's just going along. I'm like, you know, sort of 
you know, rigid soldiers. In some cases, it's you get the A's, you make them look good. Um, in some cases, it's you meet them, meet their needs. You listen to their problems. You you silence yourself. You don't have a even if you had the worst day at school, you make sure you come in cheerful, like, hey, how am I, mom? How are you? Knowing that if you come in at all sour, she's going to attack you. So you modify your emotional states, how you present yourself to suit that. So that's another need being met, meaning that the child almost doesn't think of it this way, but it's how can I not ever be a problem? You know, one thing I've heard from narcissists, people who, who are adults now, but grew up with narcissistic parents, they'll say, I did my best to make sure that my room was always clean. Mm -hmm. I would make sure that I, um, I didn't, you know, bring up, I didn't ask for I didn't ask any problem questions at, at the dinner table. They'd even say they got absolutely masterful at detecting their parents' mood just by this way the keys jingled in the door. They're like, that jingle meant he's mad. That jingle means it's okay. If the, my parent was whistling, then it was going to be okay. But if they weren't, I mean, they, they it is the vigilance yes. of growing up with a narcissistic parent. That, that, again, that supply for the narcissistic parent. In essence, a narcissistic parent feels very inconvenienced by a child. So if the child has a need, the child's basically being a child, yes. that the, the narcissistic parent almost takes it personally. How could you have made my day more? difficult right. not recognizing it's just a kid kids spill right. milk kids leave toys around that's what they do and th this absolute rigid adherence the self-centeredness and the preoccupation of the narcissistic parent is that this child has to, almost like don't exist yes. unless i expect you or need you to exist right and i also think in my own experience it was never the same expectation. So it wasn't like oh just be this kid. Right. It was on any given day maybe I don't want you to exist at all. I don't want to Correct. see you. I don't want to right. hear you. Like, That's get out exactly of here. Right. And on this day, I want you to be charming and cute mm -hmm. and impress the company. Mm -hmm. And But you have seen that over and over in like social media and stuff, this idea that empathy for so many of us we have this empathy, but it started as this like survival mechanism well, exactly of like, right. is everything okay? Right. Am I going to be safe in this moment? And so that's where, it, it, absolutely. So the empathy then becomes a trauma response. And I think it's almost like you have to view empathy on a continuum. And there's a point at which it's empathy is healthy and wonderful and it develops our relationships and it's pro-social and it's all good. But then there's a point at which the empathy is almost this overdeveloped muscle where it's not even empathy as, as much as it almost becomes that fawn response. What do I need to become for this person to calm all of this down, to make sure it's okay? I don't know that that's empathy. Again, it feels like a safety response, which yeah. is not what empathy is at all designed to be. And there's also this sense of like, well, narcissistic people, they, they target people who are agreeable and nice and warm and friendly. I would argue that by being in a narcissistic relationship, the only reason it works is that a person becomes nice and warm and friendly or the relationship doesn't work. So I think in some ways, in a lot of survivors of narcissistic relationships, you see these very warm, friendly people because that became its own form of trauma response. If I show up cheerful, everything's going to be fine because narcissistic people don't like it when people aren't che cheerful unless they're having a bad day and then they don't want you to be cheerful. Yes. So you're literally just moving on their schedule. Everything is dictated by their emotional states to which I'm sure people listening to this are saying, well, what would happen if you weren't? They scream in rage. Mm -hmm. They shame, they humiliate, they tell you you're ungrateful, you're greedy, you're entitled, you're selfish. selfish. And so they tell the kid you're bad. Mm -hmm. Well, a kid can't hear that from a parent. That's mm -hmm. too much. 
So the child who has a narcissistic parent internalizes that sense that I'm a selfish person, I'm a bad person, I'm a needy person, I'm a sensitive person. They That's how their identity gets shaped. It's completely inaccurate. But then by doing that, the, the child then internalizes all the bad. The parent gets to walk around thinking they're all that. And the child then learns more and more ways to sort of curtail their behavior. Though there is a subset of kids who have narcissistic parents who become very rebellious. They Ooh, act bet. out. I they bet. act out. They're like, you're going to notice me if it's the last thing that happens. <laughs> those kids are my yeah. heroes. <laughs> so it's, and that's a tough play for those kids yeah, because you know what's so sad is that many times that rebellion self-defeating. Mm -hmm. So they'll get into trouble. They'll get into drugs. They'll get, in, they'll get in with problem kids. And while I understand the rebellion, it can pull them off the track in terms of education. They might get into unhealthy peer relationships. They might start experimenting with sex and drugs in a way that's problematic. So the rebellion makes sense, but it ends up being self-defeating. Do you see it in genetics? Do you see like a narcissistic parent breeds a narcissistic child? Does that ever run down in families or is it? It runs down in families, but not because it's genetic, oh, right? Yeah. So they're not, think mean, about, yes, you know, think yeah. about how the narcissistic parent behaves. I, what I've often seen is that I'll see families where there's multiple siblings and you'll see one sibling's, the narcissistic parent or parents, ones of the children, right, will become narcissistic and other siblings in that family aren't. Yes. So there's there's obviously something happening. And probably our best guess on that is the different temperaments of the children. So children do have different, different temperaments. And kids with slightly more difficult, externalizing, acting out, demanding temperaments, those are the kids who are a little bit more vulnerable to becoming narcissistic. Now, narcissistic parents don't always like those kids. Mm. So those kids may struggle with the invalidation of the anger of the parent. The other kid who may become vulnerable to becoming narcissistic is if one kid was more overindulged in the family. So that's your golden child who may then almost be sort of pulled into, and it's again, I'll never blame a child for what they need to do to survive, but the golden child might kind of get pulled into the narcissistic parent system. They get they get a car, the other kids don't. They get a, uh, other resources. They might get more allowance. They don't have to do the chores because they have a sports practice, but the other kids do. So there's an, inequ there's an inequitability. That kind of golden childness, that child being told you're more special than any other child, that can also be a setup too. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. What does this look like? I'm trying again, I'm trying to give like all the possible variables for listeners. What would this look like if you had a boss who was a narcissist? Mm -hmm. And you know, everyone doesn't always have the ability to just cut mm -hmm. ties and quit mm -hmm. a job and they're inside of an environment. Mm -hmm where they don't realize that that's a major component for mm -hmm. why this is mm -hmm. so hard to manage. Like, why does life feel so hard? Why does my job suck so much? What does it look like in a managerial role? I mean, it looks exactly the same as it looks in all these other ways, but we sometimes actually view it differently because it's work. Like, we don't think our boss is supposed to be nice, right? The trope is bosses are mean, bosses are demanding. So I think we might endure more bad treatment at work without questioning it for even longer than in other adult relationships, because we might say, okay, well, especially if the boss is getting results. So let's say you're under your boss, 
the sales totals were higher. Under your boss, more things were getting published. Under your boss, awards were being won, right? So you're seeing this person who is killing it in their field, right? And so then you're thinking, well, they're actually really good at what they do. So maybe I'm not up to the job. Maybe I'm not very good. So how does it look like? It's a boss who plays favorites. It's a boss who engages in a lot of inequity in the relationship. The favorites have to do less. It's a boss who gaslights you. If you Can bring you explain up, gaslighting real yeah. quick if people mm -hmm. aren't familiar? Yeah. So gaslighting is a, it's a, a form of emotional abuse in which a person's reality and ex or experiences or perceptions or memories are doubted. And then that person is told there's something wrong with them. Gaslighting can only happen with someone we trust or that we perceive has some level of expertise, like a boss or a healthcare provider or something like that, right, teacher. And so the gaslighter will say, that never happened. I never said that. You're making that up. And you're thinking, no, no, I'm not. Like, I, mm, I have evidence. Initially, we might even engage with the gaslighter, fight back. And then what the gaslighter will say is, you're so dramatic. You're so extra. You're out of control. What's your problem? You're paranoid. You have memory problems. You should see a shrink. And that doesn't happen once. It happens hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. So over time, you feel silenced or you believe what they're telling you, that there's something wrong with you. Yes. So a boss gaslighting would look like something where you might bring up a safety issue and say, hey, this is the second time we've come up. Like, I'm really concerned. We're understaffed on this shift. Like, um, I actually think it's because you're not working hard enough. Maybe if you're working better, this would not, you know, this this would not be an issue. So now you're led to believe you're the problem. Mm -hmm. You're not working hard enough where, in fact, you're actually pointing out a very valid concern. And when that happens enough in a workplace, things can go really, really wrong. But then oftentimes either that boss has gone on or gets somehow protected. They're going to deflect blame. They're going to say, well, they should have done something about it or they knew what the protocol was and they didn't follow it. They'll always shift responsibility onto someone who was under them. Well, structure. I feel like we all have sort of front row seats now. If you just look at media in terms of politicians, heads of business, billionaires, you know, people who do really well in the entertainment industry, there is almost like this acceptance to your point of when you're succeeding, when you're winning the awards, when you're doing yep. these things, everybody looks the other way. Mm -hmm. It's sort of allowed because of the clout that you have? I think it's, for number one, when people are succeeding, we believe they have the goods instead of you did shady, manipulative stuff and threw people under the bus <laughs> right. to get here, which is what I always right. assume. Or you had like nice. the most talented team of people underneath you Perhaps. that were actually the ones who were doing the thing. Correct. But they're abusing the hell out yeah. of that Yeah, team, exactly. Right. So I, I, I tend to look at them as usually people have done things that are not probably right. Like they have... And I, get, and I would say mistreating a team is not not right, right? So whatever, however they got there, they did not get there in a good, equitable, kind way. They, I mean, in some cases, it might just be plain lucky, but they don't recognize it as luck. Some people do well because they got lucky, and they're the first ones to say, I got lucky. Yeah. Right place, right time, stars lined up, I had a connection. And that what that does is it's soothing for others to hear. If they're not doing all like, okay, I guess I was the wrong time, or I didn't have that in, or whatever. And they might keep trying, but they'll feel better. But the narcissistic person who's lucky will attribute it all to their skill and ability. Because mm. they there is a sort of ego-driven nature to a narcissist. Like they think they're the greatest they thing believe ever. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, this is it's almost delusional. Yeah. Narcissistic people not only 
only think they're great, they think of themselves as nice. They believe they're empathic. They think of themselves as generous and kind and humanitarian. They believe it. Now, at the deepest, 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 unprocessed, unconscious level of their psyche, do they believe it? No. Because if you did believe you're a good person at your core, you wouldn't have to behave like a jerk mm -hmm. in your exterior or be so, I'm so great, I'm so great. Normal people don't say that. What does it look like when a narcissist, and maybe this never happens or sometimes that, do they ever sort of implode? Because if you have all of this emptiness inside of you or all of these things, or do you just keep feeding yourself the BS until that's just your reality forever? No, they implode all the time. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about, some people use the word covert narcissist. I prefer that the technical term is the vulnerable narcissist, sort of they're used interchangeably. So when we think of the narcissist, we usually think of the grandiose narcissist. Look at me. I'm so great. Arrogant, pretentious, preening, showing off, validation seeking, often attractive, well put together, lives in a fantasy world. And they often do get things done too. Like they really are like that circus barker. Like they're able to get things done and, and they believe it all. Like come see the biggest elephant in the world or whatever they're selling. But under hidden under every grandiose narcissist is a vulnerable narcissist. And what makes that vulnerable narcissist come out and the vulnerable narcissism, or the, what people call covert narcissism, is the resentment, the sullenness, the passive aggression, the victimhood, the why isn't life fair to me? I'll show them I'm better than that. Why should I even have to wait in this line? It's a very uh, grudging yes. entitlement yes. versus the grandiose person's like, I'm great. That's why I don't need to wait in line. In a way, the grandiose, the, not in a way, the grandiose narcissistic person, much more charming, much more charismatic. Whereas a vulnerable narcissist almost looks like the rumpled fool in the corner. So you're a bit disarmed by them, mm. right? Until you start hearing you know, sort of their grudgy stuff. And so when things don't go well for that grandiose narcissistic person, then the vulnerable part will come out. They're the victim. So things don't go their way. They'll they'll shift blame onto everyone else. They won't take responsibility. Everyone's out to get me. Nobody wants me to succeed. No one wants me to win. A person like me can't get ahead because everyone's against me. That's the vulnerable narcissist talking. So in terms of the implosion, for narcissistic people who believe they're hype, and they do, because what happens is narcissistic people get more and more emboldened. The further down the track they get, and nobody calls them out on their behavior, they're always going to go down. Somehow, because they think they can get away with more and more and more. One day they just walk into the bank and think they can take the money, yep. right? They're going to make that move, whether it's they treat someone badly and they treat the wrong, and that person calls them out. They get called out on a scandal, which is something that the world changed after 2017, right? After Me Too, there was more awareness. So I think a lot of narcissistic people went down at that time, yep. you know, because now things that they just thought were axiomatic, of course I can harass people at work, were now, was now going to actually finally be called out as inappropriate behavior. So they get more and more emboldened. They really start to believe their hype. And then one day they get called out and they're shocked. Mm -hmm. It's like a kid that was allowed to call their own bedtime for years. And now someone's like, no, actually, we go to bed at 830. And they're like, what? Yeah. Eight, what are you talking about? We go to bed at 830. Or think, you know, the kid might say, like, I eat whatever I want, whenever I want. And like, no, we have meal times and healthy things you're supposed to eat. And the kid will be like, huh? That's that's almost what happens with the narcissistic person. And then they get mad at the world. The world is against me. The world is out to get me. And then and, and then they'll go into that victimized rant. They'll do things for optics. I'm going to go into special treatment or whatever the heck they, their, their thing, their narrative they're creating. But they implode all the time oh when gosh. things don't go the way they want them to. How often do you think people are inside of relationships 
with a narcissist and actually realize it. Less than half of the time, yeah. I think, you know, because I think once people realize that the climate in the relationship changes, right? So I think for a lot of people, especially when they've been relationships that have been going on for a while, you've gotten sort of acclimatized to the conditions, you've adjusted to the conditions. So this is your normal, right? And you don't question it because to question it is painful because once you question it, it almost feels like a call to action that you may not be prepared to do. You may not want to get divorced. You may not want to move out of your house. You may not want to disengage from someone you see on a regular basis. Like it feels like you have to do something. I always tell people you don't have to do anything. Half the battle is just seeing what it is and, and sort of engaging with them in a different way. But I also think that because there's so many different kinds of narcissistic relationships, right? It's harder to recognize it sometimes in a parent because you're so embedded in the justifications you've made about this person that to, it, there, it feels many people will say, I felt disloyal, like I was a bad person to think of my parent that way, especially if the parent had any kind of difficult backstory mm -hmm. or the parent struggled in any way, if that makes sense. So those things can make it harder for someone to say, instead of they'll say, oh, my, no, my parent just had a really hard life and that's why they're like this. But even that, can I just say, I'm, I'm realizing this in this exact moment uh -huh. that even that, doesn't make sense. I mean, I was aware of both of my parents' hard backstory for as long as I can remember. Being a little kid, little, little kid, and them telling me stories about the things that happened to them, that was justification for why they were acting a certain way. And right now I'm having that like, wait, why did I even know that? Like, I would never tell my kids I, obviously, we we explain things to like help them or keep them safe or whatever. But I would never tell them the worst parts. I would never put that on them. Even that's bonkers. It's bonkers, and but it, and there's but there's ways of bonkers, right? Because a kid <laughs> could find this out. Yes. Not from the parent, right? So you Absolutely. could have a parent with a bad backstory. Yeah. Right. Who's not narcissistic? Yes. Someone else says like, "Oh, you didn't know your parent." Da da da. And they'd be like, "I never knew this." Right. Right. And the parent never uses it as a justification. Yes. And the kid might go up to parents like, why didn't you tell me da da da? And say, because everything's, I'm so happy, I feel so, yeah. I'm so happy, I'm good in my life and yada, yada, yada. And so I think that it is the, they, the narcissistic parent weaponizes their story. They use it as a way, one more tool to keep that child in their place and also let them know, to, uh, literally you're inducing guilt in the child, mm. right? That That's what it is. So. I try to tell people, I said, listen, no doubt in my mind, many people behave narcissistically because they had terrible backstories. Might, they might even have ter difficult present stories. And I get that and I feel for them and I have empathy for that. And their behavior is still not okay. Yes. Those two things can be true at the same yes. time. And people struggle with that. They're like, but no, no, no. But how could the, how could I say their behavior is not okay if they had a bad backstory? Because I said their behavior is not okay. Yeah. Yelling at someone's not okay. Manipulating someone's not okay. Oh, but that's what they learned from their parents. Okay. But they're getting up. They're going to a job. They're living a life. Sometimes they're really successful. So they can do all that. They can figure this out. Amen. And that's the problem is that we let them get away with it. And a lot of us who've been through these relationships, we've had tough backstories too. Yeah. Do you recommend that people sort of cut off relationships like that with parents if they're deeply unhealthy? Or is there a way to be in relationship with a narcissistic parent? 
Uh, no, I n- I'm never prescriptive on contact. I right. think that that's a very risky place. Yeah. There's so many things that drive why we have ongoing contact with a narcissistic person. That can be practical factors. There can be cultural factors. Uh, there can be I mean, no, so many safety factors. Right. There's so many things. So I'm very careful to say that there's no path forward, that all paths carry risks. There's also things like people say, I still do have some love for this person. The yeah. tricky part about narcissism is every day isn't bad. That there's still, you know, there's there's those moments just when a person's like, I'm leaving him. And then you have a really nice long weekend. You're like, whoa, the devil I know. And I see my friends and they're dating and I don't want to. I mean, and then people and then one good weekend buys you another two months of bad times. And then so, I mean, there's a lot of narcissistic people. And that other reason people use the word covert is to the public. They look like really well put together. Great people. People are like, oh, gosh, you're so lucky to be married. Like, what a great relationship. And you're thinking, I'm living in the twilight zone, right? So I think that when you're making these decisions, especially around parents, I'll tell people that it's more important to know it than it is to make some sort of dramatic decision to leave it or not. I think one of the big problems I have with TikTok and Instagram and everybody and their brother thinking they're a narcissism expert is like, <laughs> yes. you're a narcissist, you gotta go. I'm like, oh no. Because people going through these relationships already feel so shamed. So now they're like, oh, I'm weak because I'm not leaving. I'm like, you're not weak. It's It took all the strength in the world to see what this is. Right. Now make your decisions from a place that's authentic to you. And some people will say, what's authentic to me is this is an elderly person. I'm the only one who can take care of them. But now I no longer know there's never going to be a thank you. There's never going to be gratitude. They are going to mistreat me. So they get just like, I said, instead of sitting there all afternoon, I set a timer, a sound goes off. They don't know the difference. Say, oh my gosh, I have to get to this work thing. And they'll say, oh, you never stay long enough. It's never going to be long enough. Now you've only endured it for 30 minutes, right? So you, you you create your own sort of internal structures to manage it. You know, some people, the grief is ongoing. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is what I endured as a kid. And that, that's where therapy becomes absolutely essential. Because I know that you did endure this as a kid. You still came out the other side. There's meaning and purpose. Like if that suffering had some meaning and purpose, it, you might be a stronger parent because mm-hmm. of it. You might be much more aware of being present with others for it. There might be an empathy that came out of that. You know, again, it's understanding it, it, we can't just we can't just assume it was all a waste, right? Yeah. There was something of you, you you brought out of this. But people will say the grief is overwhelming, that they'll go and see it and they'll say, what if I had grown up in a normal family with normal parents who got along and didn't manipulate me i like I, we don't have a little like a sort of a vr machine that lets you go live that but i, I tell all of my clients and we have a healing program full of thousands of people and i tell them who is sitting in front of me now wouldn't be this you without that and i understand they're like but i doubt myself and i blame it. i don't want to be this person i said yep but you got resilience all the way down like yeah. there's a toughness and there's and I don't know. I mean, I think of my own self and my own story. I wouldn't be doing this work. And I know this work is helping people. Yeah. There was a journey and a process. If I had been a little miss happy, happy romances, happy friendships, happy family life, happy, happy, I'd be doing whatever the hell happy people do for a living, <laughs> which I'm not clear on. But that's not my world. That's this. And I love what I do. And I feel grateful every day I get to get up and help people in this way. I wish it wasn't true. Yeah. But that's not the world we live in. Yeah. Well, you said something that really resonated with me. I have a really fantastic astrologer. 
I don't really know much about astrology, but this woman is so wise. So about every six months, I do a session with her and just like talk to her because she's so wise. And she said something to me in our last session that really resonated with what you said, talking about one of my parents. She said, the hard part is that you just won't see them for who they are. That's where the that's where the grief keeps biting mm-hmm. you. That's exactly because right. Because you just refuse. You're surprised every mm-hmm. time. Every surprised, time right. they do the same thing they've always done, right. and you're shocked by it. And that doesn't and work. And you could be in some kind of whatever relationship you want to have if you would just see them for who they are. And that's what we call radical acceptance. Yeah, that's good. That's it. Radical acceptance is. I always say that. Imagine like you're on this process. You're going through this narcissistic relationship. You're like, damn it, I'm going to heal. And I'm like, okay, well, here's the toll plaza. Here's the gateway. Call it what you will. This gateway is radical acceptance. And let me tell you, what's on the other side isn't pretty. Mm. Because everyone's like, radical acceptance. Oh, it's <laughs> not that. Radical acceptance like, oh, my God, what? And it, whether we want to admit it or not. Because if you're, I tell folks, if you're still surprised, that meant you were not fully, you're not 100%. You might be 90, you might be 92. But 100% means when they do it, you're like, now it doesn't mean you're not hurt by it. It doesn't mean you don't feel grief. It doesn't mean those things. But you shouldn't be surprised. Mm, That's good. And that's what we're trying to get get ahead of that sense of surprise. So when they do it, you're like, oh gosh, here we go. You know, and I think that for some folks, it's, for example, let's say they're planning a big event, right? Baby shower or a wedding or something like that. And like, it's my big day. I don't want them to screw it up. I'm like, they're going to screw it up. You need workarounds for the fact that they're going to screw it up. Now, some people listen and they will. They'll literally mobilize family members whose only job is to manage this person. And that's it. Like they literally, they'll pay air tickets and everything (laughs) to just have them manage this person. Right. But some people don't listen. And they'll say the whole day was shot. Yeah. It, my memory of that day was their tantrum. My memory of that day was them criticizing me. It was supposed to be my day. Mm-hmm. And that's the not getting it. That's the not getting the radical acceptance. And we don't go from zero to 60 on radical acceptance. It takes time. There is grief. There is, there is, no, it can't be. Or maybe I'm wrong. Or let me try this. Oh, no, I'm going to ask them. And people go through that whole process for a while. Whatever that penny drop moment is, when you see it so holy that you're never surprised again, that, I mean, it's still a tough moment because like I said, if it's a parent, you still feel grief. But if you're still feeling surprised, you haven't gotten the radical acceptance, which means you're not going to fully get to that process of healing. That that does hold you back. It's an invisible force. Yeah, that's so good. Well, talking about the healing too, I want to talk about the new book for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because hopefully you've given people some really good ideas mm-hmm. of maybe what it might look like in mm-hmm. their life if they have mm-hmm. someone who is narcissistic yeah. or has narcissistic tendencies. I'm curious what the healing looks like because mm-hmm. I think in my own experience, I could not figure out I feel like I'm crazy because I feel like I see something that nobody sees. Mm-hmm. And I'm a researcher, like just my, I read every book and I just kept looking and looking and everything that I found on narcissism at the time was like in your face and sort of like the one you said where it's like bigger than life and what, and I was like, that's not it. Mm-mm. That's not Mm-mm. what this... And it wasn't until I understood what it might look like more subtly and the passive aggressive and the gaslighting and those things that I had this like, my mind was blown. But I have to tell you, I have so much grief 
still in me for every version of myself. You know, how did I let someone treat me that way? How did I let someone speak to me like that? How did I let someone do these things over and over and over again that when I think of them, I just like, I want to like smash a car with a bat or like cry forever or what does it look like to, I mean, the acceptance piece, yes, but what does healing look like? Well, I mean, I'd even say in the example you're giving, how did I let someone do this, treat me this way? The first thing I'd want to know is how did you make sense of what was being done to you at the time? I would shut down. So that shutdown though, right? That shutdown in many ways is a trauma response, right? You've gone, they've gone to that place, right? That is, that has violated you in a way, your sense of self. And so you shut down and that sort of kind of freeze response is a way of you, you know, again, sort of feeling safe when someone's coming at you. But there's also the concept of DARVO. And I don't know if you're uh, familiar with DARVO. <laughs> It'll help me make a lot of sense of this. So Dr. Jennifer Fried is someone who's looked a lot at betrayal and betrayal trauma. And she coined this term DARVO. And DARVO stands for deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. So when said something is said to them, they're like, I didn't do that. And by the way, you did this and I'm suffering as a result of your terrible behavior. Yes. So by the time it's done, the person who actually is the one being harmed in the relationship has been left feeling as though they're the one who was the problem. They were the offender. And so the darvoing, and you see this all the time, it's people, I didn't do that. And it's a witch hunt kind of thing. That's an example of darvoing, right? So that and that's a very classical vulnerable narcissistic you know covert narcissistic kind of a move but the and i'm glad you brought this up because when we look at the literature when we see the harms of narcissism the harms on kids the harms in relationships the vulnerable narcissism is what's causing all the problems the grandiose narcissists are a pain in the ass right they brag they cheat the, the worst thing about the grandiose narcissist is this is the this is the person who might be more likely to just sort of like flirt with the person and then get their number and get get sort of you know shady that they'll do that kind of stuff and obviously I'm, I'm not, not you know that's hurtful i get that but the vulnerable narcissism is where the harms are these are the people who are so preoccupied with their own stuff who are who are so guilt, they're so good at inducing guilt from other people for twisting and turning that the vulnerable narcissism is actually where we see this manipulation done in a much more harmful way. And the outcomes for kids are worse. In fact, grandiose narcissistic parents, eh, not always that terrible. I mean, they're annoying and they can be frustrating, but they can also be very concerned with how are my kids doing? And they might actually show up. Like, mm. I mean, even though they're sort of have an agenda for the kids, it feels very different than that deep, manipulation yes. that the vulnerable covert yes. narcissistic what does that look does. like for so that will be things like the the in, in, induction of grief of guilt like you know i knock myself out i do so much for us and you can't even spend a little time with mm. me or uh, you're asking me to do this and and you know i i like i think we're supposed to we should be sharing all the responsibilities in this family no they're kids right. they can't do as much right. as you right? right so the the vulnerable narcissistic parent really is it is they they all roads are to caring for them but they manipulate it so that so that they look like the ones that are ro the wronged party which yes. is you know i do so much and i'm not appreciated you made a mess and now i have to clean it yes. up how could you leave a mess what are you trying to do to me 
And it's like the kid wasn't even thinking about their, they were probably just embroiled in their toy and then got distracted with a sibling. They, But they really leave the kid feeling as though the kid was actually trying to hurt the parents. Yes. Yeah. Those are the kinds of maneuvers we see yeah, in vulnerable I, narcissistic I, parents. I definitely saw um, the favoritism you talked yeah. about mm -hmm. big time. Mm -hmm. For many children to tolerate persona non grata, the withdrawal, the withholding, the rage, it's too much. And so this is why uh, something I write about in It's Not You is when I'm talking about all the roles people take in narcissistic families, one of them is what I call the truth teller or the truth seer, right? And I don't even think that's a role as much as it's something that happens to a kid. These are often kids who are very intuitive, very perceptive. They were born that way, mm -hmm. right? And so at some inherent unprocessed, like they don't have the words for it, they know something's not right. That could be what we were just referring to. They just know something's not right. And even their little kid face, that narcissistic parent can sense, this kid's got my number and that kid often gets scapegoated as a result. Yep. So it's a, the the truth, see, I say truth seer because many times the child does not speak out because when they speak out, vengeance will be swift. Yes. And the yeah. child's too scared of that, right? And so the, and like I said, and invariably that truth see your kid becomes a scapegoat, even if they're not saying anything, because it's on their face. Like, and, and narcissistic people, interestingly, are very socially perceptive. For all their lack of empathy, they're very aware of what's happening in the room when it has something to do with them. Yes. And so when they know they're being seen, they feel like they're being unmasked, there will be rage. Wow. What would you suggest to people who are maybe co-parenting with an ex who mm -hmm. is a narcissist and they're you know, for whatever reason, they're like have to split time or the kids are still interacting mm -hmm. with that parent. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate that? It's not easy. I mean, yeah. there's nothing I'm going to say here that that's, a, that's sort of like a hack for dealing with this. There's a woman named Tina Swithin who does great work in this space. She helps people deal with probably more the severe malignant kind of narcissistic situations. So, I mean, she handles all of it, but I think her guidance is particularly important there. But what, you know, one thing she came up with, everyone talks about gray rocking, gray rocking, yes. right? She talks about yellow rocking because she said that yellow, and she chose yellow because she likes the color yellow, but she's like, gray rock is great. But the problem with gray rock is when you're doing it in person, it can look a little cold. Mm -hmm. It can look a little, even it's unsettling for a kid, right? So the parents are saying yes, no, and you're very flat. Yellow rock's like, yeah, mm, yeah, no. You know, it's that kind of thing, but there's a little bit more inf emotion infused. There might even be some idle conversation like, yeah, it was rainy this weekend. Are you doing okay with all the rain? Yeah. So it, it doesn't feel to the child that they're in this really cold situation. Mediators don't like gray rocking. It looks cold and they might actually feel that the gray rocking parent is the problem, even though they're Can doing it. Can you explain gray yeah. rocking? So gray rocking familiar. is a communication technique in a narcissistic relationship where, I mean, it's called gray rocking because you become as inert and dull and, and uninteresting and boring is a gray rock. So it's a lot, it's it's very, very unemotional and to the point communication. It's a lot of yes, no, not sure. And if it's too flat, it does feel a bit almost mm -hmm. like it feels like its own form of antagonism. Yes. Right. And so I think gray rock is great when you're writing, like like a text message. Yes. You say yes. So now you've answered the question. Yeah. Right. No one can say you didn't respond to them. You did. Right. I said yes. But the narcissist wants a fight. Yes. So they want you to get into the mud with them. And like, you know, if they if they said something like, is it true or is it not that you told the kids that they could bring the this to the that and the that to the this and their their whole word salad situation? And you might write, 
it's true. I said I, they could bring their towels. Yes. And that's it. They're yeah. done. And they're like, what happened? And, but she answered the question. It yeah. was really, did, did you tell them they could bring towels or whatever? Or is it, blah, 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 could they eat? Could they watch that movie? And you say, yep. I yeah. said they could watch that movie. Like yeah. that's the fact. You strip it down to fact, right? That works great in writing, but not as great in person when there's kids and others involved. Great rocking can work at work where you can sort of be kind of to the point. But yellow rocking is this again, it's a little bit like, hey, hey, how's everyone going? You might be thinking, like, I need this conversation to be done. I can't stand this person. But when you're co-parenting with a narcissistic person, it's it's nightmarish, especially if you have shared custody, because you may know when your kids are with that parent, they don't enjoy it. Yeah. They come back a lot more dysregulated. Their homework's not done. They're confused. I mean, in, in extreme cases, it just you feel like I'm getting a different kid back and it takes days to put them yeah. back together just to send them right back into that yes. situation. Yes. And no family court in the world is going to listen to that. Right. Family court is about parents' rights. they present so perfectly at in the hearing and yep. they're and they're this upstanding citizen that everybody loves even when they're not an upstanding yes. citizen yes but it's yes so crazy yeah, it's, it is and so family court is for parents rights not children's rights yeah and so they're not really worried about the well-being of the child they're worried about coming up with a settlement that's equitable exactly and so for a lot of people this is the most painful decision of all do i stay in this marriage because at least then i'm around my kids all the time or do I leave it? It's it's really, really difficult. Yeah. Oh, God. Is there a correlation often with addiction or alcoholism and narcissists? Absolutely. I would say the correlations are sitting around somewhere around 60%. Wow. It probably addiction and narcissism are the, uh, when you look at narcissism and all other, other mental health issues, addiction is probably the highest overlap. Why is that? I mean, I think it's tricky, right? Because I think that what you've got is, it's a funny thing. Addiction often onsets young. It's, a, it's from a mental health perspective, rates of addiction are highest in 18 to 25 year olds, right? Because they would have likely started the substance use in um, pre, you know, post-puberty adolescence, right? So they'll get into it and, and the addiction sort of forms, right? So it starts to become a big, bit of a chicken egg. Could these narcissistic kids be the ones who are sort of feeling like they have all these emotions they're trying to keep uh, you know, sort of under wraps? Does the substance use sort of ignite a nascent narcissism in them. So it's sort of, they're being shaped depending on the substances they're using. For example, a kid who's smoking a lot of weed to not deal with their emotions is now not dealing with their emotions. Narcissistic people don't know how to manage their emotions. That's why they use substances, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't want to deal with it. But when you want to do the deeper dive into this conversation, and it gets quite interesting, is addiction's a disease, okay? Plain, straight up. And that's why we treat it medically, Right. But given that high overlap of narcissism, you can treat addiction medically all you want. But if what's left now is a sober narcissist, that's where we had the term the dry drunk. Mm. That's what, what the dry, does that mean? The dry drunk is a person who has all the behaviors and beliefs and ways of going through the world as an addict does. They're just not using. They're not drinking. Wow. Selfish. Don't take responsibility. Antagonistic. Victimized. All that stuff, that's what we see in the proverbial dry drunk. Not drinking, but they walk around like that person. Mm. That's the person they are. If people are having like, holy crap moments and they're realizing relationships in their life that follow these patterns, 
beyond getting the book, which we're all going to do and read in detail, what are some of the healing mm-hmm. techniques that are helpful? You have to have the radical acceptance piece. If you cannot see this clearly, healing, it's very difficult. Because until you see it clearly, you're going to remain stuck in the cycles of self-blame. I'm not saying the grief will ever go away. And the radical acceptance, sadly, that you open that gateway, you radically accept, and now you started this pathway of grief. What have I, all the things you've lost, a healthy childhood, a soft place to land in a family of origin, the idea of growing old with someone, your kids growing up in an intact family, a sense of hope gets lost, a loss of innocence. There's so many things that get lost in the grief of a narcissistic relationship. And so radically accepting means you keep repeating that because every time you see the narcissistic person, it comes right back to you. You see how much it's not going to change. But as you work through that grief, and grief, like any human process, does it does come through its conclusion if you don't fight it, right? So you get to the other side, you do start seeing things more clearly. And then it's the hard work of figuring out who the hell you are. Mm-hmm. Because we had to sort of sacrifice ourselves to make these narcissistic relationships work. We gave up on our wants. We gave up on our needs. We gave up on who we are. We gave up on our authentic selves. We just, we had to become what they wanted. So excavating that and figuring out who I'm like, what am I about? What do I stand for? What's meaningful to me? What gives my life purpose? That's the hard work of healing. And slow. And that it's is a very slow process. Slow because people feel, well, I was told I was selfish if I did this kind of thing. Those internalized things, you're selfish, you're greedy, you're needy. Those words are bouncing around your head at the same time. You're like, what is important to me? Can I do that? Oh, no, that's selfish to do what's important to me. And so you you keep you keep sort of hitting against the walls. But there is nothing more important than even if all you figure out is that I like the thermostat set at 65 and I like watching reality TV and I like pineapple on my pizza, but you could never know those things to be true. Yes. Because a narcissist would force you to set the thermostat where you want it. Only dumb people put pineapple on pizza, they tell you, and only lowbrow people watch reality TV. So you gave up on everything. You're like, I like these things and that's who I am. Yes, it's so it's so silly. I've actually talked about this a lot after getting divorced. I met my ex-husband when I was 18 years old. Yeah. He was seven, eight years older than me. We broke up, I think, when I was 37. So it was a very long time. And I moved out essentially like for the first time as like an adult living by myself. And it was during COVID. So I was, you know, you weren't going anywhere. I was by myself. And I remember it was like a big deal. I got HBO Max, which we had never had. And I was like, I would like to watch HBO. And then I, this sounds so stupid, but I signed up for HBO because I really wanted it. And I was scrolling through and there was a, a TV show that was a fantasy, like swords and dragons and whatever. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I kept scrolling. And I scrolled for a minute and I went, wait, that show looked interesting. And I went back to it and I was like, I really want to watch this show. And then I had this huge unpacking. Why didn't I just watch it when I saw it? Because he hated fantasy. Right. And I know that sounds maybe so simple or stupid mm-hmm. to people who don't get it, but like so many things that you shut down about yourself, the environment I came out of was whatever the person in authority would like. And I just sort of had been raised to make myself most agreeable. Yes. So all of these things, I just watching fantasy, having wind chimes, using dill in food, like all of this stuff. And I say that for anybody right now who's maybe in that space in a breakup or coming outside of something. It's those little things. Everything. It's not like, oh, all the, I'm going to move to Miami. Yeah. and what? No, it's like 
do you like extra pepper yeah, on your food? It. Like and it's little it. stuff. It's and it and the thing is though, it goes a step further is that we it's not just as simple as you felt silence. You were also told you're foolish for wanting to. Yes. What do you like? Six? You want to yes. watch people with swords? Yes. And ew, dill, gross, or whatever it may be. Like, the, what do you have? Bad taste buds? So like you were insulted. Yes. So it got internalized as this damaged part of yourself. So yeah, you want to set that thermostat to 77 degrees and you're the one paying the utility bill? Go for yes. it. You know, yes. you want to get a cat. Like so many people are go, who only weird women who are going to die alone get cats. <laughs> go get the first thing. Go get that cat. Yes. You know? And so it's all of these things, big and small, but I I do agree with you. I think the moment you have the aha moment about what you want on the pizza and you get that pizza, yeah. you're healing. Yes, dude. What does this look like when you come into a new relationship? Mm. You've done your healing. Yeah. You did your therapy. You're trying to come into a new, healthy, mm -hmm. whole relationship. What does that look like? So it's not easy. And one thing I'm going to tell it straight out is you got to give yourself time. So I always call it like sort of the 12-month cleanse, right? That I say, if you were in a narcissistic relationship that lasted a year or longer, I want you to take a year off before yes. you get back out there again. Because it takes about at least that much time to do that work, unearth yourself, figure out the pizza toppings, watch the fantasy show, whatever it is, but get back into rhythm, get back into your body, kind of turn down those, you know, trauma responses that you're having. Like, I have to please, I have to please, right? So assuming you've done all that, it's not easy to get back out there because when you take that much time, actually the discernment, if you're doing it right, kicks in and you you stop and you're like, hmm, I'm noticing, I always say that if you're doing this right, you probably throw back fish that were big enough to keep, you know, <laughs> and it's That's okay. Good. Let those fish That's swim. That's a good line. Fine. You'll find it. You'll, you'll, you might need to get the giant swordfish who's so sweet, so kind, so respectful. You're like, okay, this feels right. Some people will feel angry that if they put themselves back out there and they they let someone in who is like showing some narcissistic -y signs. I say, listen, you might want to take a second to be sure of what you're seeing. Some survivors say, nope, they one toxic thing and I'm out again. So it's a lot of calibration. But I always tell folks that time is your friend. Slow down, slow down. Because when you slow down, you are checking in with your body. You are asking yourself, does this feel right? And if anyone doesn't let you slow down and says, well, I guess you're not looking for a relationship or you have commitment issues, they just out. Right. There you go. It becomes a great test because somebody who cares about you, who's into you will say, we'll take this at whatever pace you need to. I'm enjoying how we're hanging out together. So let's just keep hanging out. And somebody's able to feel that in you then that's a sign. But if you're really asked, I need to take this slower, you don't even have to say why. One thing I've noticed that even people who are even like really low grade narcissistic folks don't like it when they're not, they're, they're not in charge of the narrative and the agenda around timing. But so slowing things down can be a great way to engage in that discernment you need when you get into a new relationship. That's so good. It was sort of hard for me to navigate how to use my voice and mm -hmm. how to speak up for myself. Mm -hmm. And I was determined when I started dating again to not fall into old patterns yeah, right. and to to save things, which felt so impossible to mm -hmm. me because I'd never practiced that before. And I was really lucky in that my boyfriend is someone who was my friend for a while before mm -hmm. we started dating. So he knew my story. We had bonded over friend things before we ever mm -hmm. wanted to make out with each other. And you talked about the thermostat, which reminded me, I hate being cold. I mean, you can tell because I've made this room like toasty. I tend to run cold. 
and I hate being cold. And it was always cold in my house mm-hmm. previously. And when I moved out, it's just the funny things that you're like, my God, you mm-hmm. know, it's, this is going to be warm. I remember one time he was over and I think he had like open windows or something. He was trying to cool it off. And I was getting like rage inside me. I was getting so upset because yeah. I couldn't get warm mm-hmm. and it was completely out of proportion with what was actually yeah. happening in the and then I finally was like I am cold and I'm gonna turn the heat on that's what I'm gonna do because it's my house right mm-hmm. and he was like okay oh my gosh like of course why do you want me to get you a sweater like I'm so sorry I, I didn't mm-hmm. you know but he could also tell how upset I was yeah. and he was like what What's hap- what just happened? Mm-hmm. Something bigger just happened. Mm-hmm. And I was explaining the situation. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh my gosh, just please tell me. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not, and I have to say, and I wanna say this for people who maybe find themselves in a similar situation. It is wild to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't weaponize everything you yes. say, who doesn't make <laughs> yes. you bad, who doesn't, yeah. ma- who just goes, oh my gosh. Cool. There's no drama. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. no, they don't internalize it and make it Mm -hmm. about them. Like when it would happen over and over again, I was like almost left spinning a little bit. Like, wait, Mm -hmm. we can just talk about that Mm -hmm. and you can just take it on board Mm -hmm. and then we just move forward. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yep. There is, there is a, there's a rainbow. There's another side of it. Absolutely. There's an other side to this. And it is, you know, whether it's coming out and how somebody enters a new relationship, it may very well be that someone moves to live in a different place. They may have never lived alone their whole adult lives. That it might be that people say, I'm going to go back into the workforce. It might be people who say, I'm going to finally finish that college degree. It, it, It could be any number of things where people are just sort of quieting those voices down. But I think the intimate relationship space is the hardest. But after a few times like that, there's no argument about the heater. You may I always say to people, experiment with making needs known early, even if it's the littlest thing, like, can I sit on that side of the table? I'd love to look out at the view, mm. right? And if they say, sure, absolutely, I should have offered it, pay attention. Little, little asks, you know, do you mind if we go to this place? I'm vegetarian and they have so many better options, that kind of thing. You keep making these, these are not big asks. These are not cataclysmic asks. And if these are getting pushed back, again, there's a sign. But if these are being embraced, if you have experience after experience after experience where you are being seen and heard and not being devalued, pay attention to the first time you give them any form of feedback or criticism. So the first time you say to them, I mean, it can be the littlest thing. If it's someone narcissistic, you could, I always use this example, like you, maybe you're going out to a concert and you say, oh, I think this was actually the parking garage for the venue and they'll lose it. They'll be like, are you telling me I can't drive? You tell me I don't know where to, and you're like, oh my gosh. You, you know, but it might be even the littlest bit of feedback if you say, hey, maybe we should have gone on that, it's taken that exit. It seems like it would go quicker. The GPS told you to exit. Pay attention to how they respond to that because if they lose it, yeah, I don't care how bad their day was. That's it. That you're done. Yeah, God, so good. This has been such. Oh, a gift. thank I'm you. I'm so grateful, and I know that the audience is gonna so appreciate your oh, wisdom. Oh, I'm so grateful to you. If they want to hang out with you, I mean, basically, if you search narcissism on YouTube, you are who is coming up. I know. Period. I know. Uh, but if they want to read the books, hang yeah. out with you online, mm-hmm. like, can you tell us yeah, all so the please. details? Buy the book. 
please buy the book. But we also have, we have a YouTube channel where we post new content every day. And it's all also been really organized because we have over a thousand videos. So people can probably find the answer there. We also have a healing program for people who are coming, you know, healing from narcissistic abuse, narcissistic relationships. And I, you know, people want to do the deeper dive. You know, it's a monthly program. You can get a workshop every month. There's a Q&A every month. There is a community platform. There are journal prompts every week. There is a guided meditation every month. So, and the community is worth it alone because now you're with other people who are going through this and they're very open and transparent and vulnerable and beautiful and they're an amazing group. So that's another thing I have to do, the deeper dive. You can find that on my website at drromany.com. If you're a therapist listening to this, I have a training program for therapists who want to get certified to work with people going through narcissistic abuse. Again, check out my website and you can go and sign up for that and and you get your continuing ed units for doing that. So there's also that opportunity if you're if you have that kind of qualification and you want to do work in this area. I have multiple books. This is my third on it but the others are more descriptive. One of them's more about should I stay or should I go? If you're in an intimate relationship, the other's about narcissism in general. This one's about healing. So the three together, you're pretty well covered, but <laughs> by this one for sure. And so there's lots of different ways to get oh. the information that I offer. And, and I can't thank you enough for oh. giving me the opportunity to have this conversation with yeah. you today. Thank you. Thank you. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.